End of Death, a collective of musicians at Van City Church, has released a collection of Christmas songs to celebrate the Advent season. The Long Winter Breaks is now available from all digital retailers and streaming services. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our annual Advent series, The Long Winter Breaks, 2021. As the 1988 Christmas season was just beginning, a 17-year-old girl named Junko was riding her bike home from work in her city of Masato, Japan, and she was assaulted by four teenage boys. Elsewhere in her neighborhood and around the world, families were gathering around the warmth of togetherness as they festooned their living rooms with shimmering garlands and their rooftops with blinking colored lights. Elsewhere in the world, men, women, and happy children sang carols and exchanged gifts, and they sipped steaming cocoa from shining red mugs and watched stop-motion reindeer puppets on television. But while the Sundays of Advent came and went, as the Christmas Eve of 1988 became the Christmas Day of 1988, never to be repeated, and same old Lang Syne rang out over New Year's Day through it all, Junko was imprisoned by young men and subjected to ongoing and indescribable horrors, more depraved than any horror movie, until she eventually succumbed to traumatic shock in the early days of January 1989 and died. And so many people pulled lights from browning evergreens and tucked decorative figurines into cobwebbed attics. A city in Japan, unseen by most of the world, reeled from a discovery so horrifying that the season itself suddenly seemed disingenuous, a sham, that the world could celebrate, revel in its merrymaking while unthinkable evil enveloped and destroyed a young woman for no good reason at all. And the Christmas season, you and I know, has no space, no shelf for a story like this one at a time like this, that I would begin the first Sunday of our shared Christmas season describing it likely confuses someone listening. But inevitably, as the world learned the awful truth of what took place behind closed doors during the Christmas season of 1988, a question long asked by mankind found its way across the lips of the discouraged and, I would argue, rightfully doubtful. Where was God? Where is God? And this, in many ways, is the question of Advent. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. It is a sacred season of the church calendar with origins that are kind of impossible to fully trace or rightfully date. Centuries ago, we know this much, Christians set a fixed date for the Christ Mass, the celebration of the incarnation of God and the birth of Jesus And they set it deliberately during the December solstice, which was a time cold and dark when remembering the one who was called the light of the world was a welcome relief to the frigid isolation of winter. And then by the fourth century, we actually have official church writings acknowledging the observation of Advent, which had become a recurring tradition all across the church. And by the fifth and sixth centuries, Advent is well represented in Christian literature and well represented in church history, as is the idea of an Advent sermon series, which is what we're doing right now. 
meaning this thing in which we are participating is happening all over the world amongst disciples of Jesus throughout all kinds of different traditions and has been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the advent of church history had nothing to do with chocolates or countdown calendars. Advent was about recognition of and meditation on two incredible realities unfolding in the midst of an awful period of waiting. The word advent comes from the Latin adventus, which itself translates the Greek word parousia, which is a word utilized by the scriptures to explain two incredible events in history. One, Jesus' first arrival amongst humanity in flesh and blood, and two, an eventual return of Jesus in glory at the renewal of all things. And Advent recognizes both things while acknowledging and recognizing the space in between as well, which is the waiting period, the awful cold, dark waiting. I actually love Christmas. I always have. I love it more than anyone in this room. That's an objective thing. In fact, I am the pastor of Christmas. Uh, It's a self-dubbed thing. I love nearly all things Christmas. I love all the music, including the very divisive Paul McCartney single, Wonderful Christmas Time which for some reason, this thumbs down coming from, yeah, for some reason, wow, several thumbs down. How about this? How about this? If you like Wonderful Christmas Time, raise your hand. Okay, this is more than I thought. If you actually can't stand it, it's usually one of the two. If you don't like it at all, raise your hand. Yeah, see, look at that. There's not so many. Wow, Kyle reluctantly, like, are you going to be shamed for it? Yes, you are now. How can you not like that song? (laughs) Uh, I like it. I read Dickens' A Christmas Carol every single year around this time, and I watch at least three adaptations of the book every year, sometimes more. And if you're wondering, uh, Robert Zemeckis' 2009 film starring Jim Carrey is the best adaptation of the source material, while The Muppet Christmas Carol is the best overall by way of pure joy, which is also a commercial for the kids' movie night that's coming up on... What's the day on that, Patrick? Somebody yell at me? The 11th. The 11th. Thank you, Katie. Hopefully you did that accurately. <laughs> I just went with it so trusting. Um, this is the levity, by the way. That, that opener was very intense, uh, and there's more coming too. But for now, I love good and bad Christmas movies. I watch dozens of them every year. I have for as long as I can remember. I love decorations, both classy and tacky. And with no one to impress, to hear me at all, I sit alone writing in my office listening to a 2.9 days-long Christmas playlist of my own design, which is only one of the 10 playlists I've curated over the years to set various moods for various genres of merrymaking. Um, I walk around outside with Christmas music issuing from the phone in my back pocket so as to soundtrack festivities appropriately, uh, like hanging Christmas lights on the roof or roaming a Christmas tree farm, which we did earlier this week, and, uh, and it's just coming out of my back pocket. People walk by and they, I hear them ask one another, Where the, where's that music coming from? Do you hear that? And I just let them believe that it's Christmas spirit in the air. <laughs> because again, I am the pastor of Christmas as part of my job. It's like that last scene and it's a wonderful life everywhere I go. Except 
Except, I have to point this out, as the pastor of Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life isn't actually a Christmas movie. It's a two-hour sleeping pill with five minutes of Christmas at the end. That's right. That's right. It's garbage. You can watch it any time of year and, and be bored then if you like that. You have to have discriminating and often divisive tastes like these to be the pastor of Christmas. Otherwise, they don't let you do it. Um, my point is that long before I knew about Advent, the rich tradition of it, the theological significance of it, long before I became a pastor or finished seminary or preached any Christmas sermons, I already loved Christmas. I'm not ashamed to admit that I did and do love all the trappings, both sacred and secular, holy and commercial. I can't help it. I love all of it. And so I often forget at Christmas, the story. In that warm rush of buzzing nostalgia, I forget about the garden and the snake, about centuries of bloodshed and depravity and the long winter of the soul, about injustice and evil as looming gods with a lowercase g over a dark, cold globe spinning indifferently throughout a lonely universe. And I don't think to ask what has been asked by Christians all over the world at Advent, where was God? Where is God? Like the prophet asked in Isaiah, and, Isaiah 64. I forget about the deep cosmic profundity of such a question that elsewhere in the world, in dark corners of it, chaos reigns and evil has its way. And it's not just out there. It's not just abstract and unthinkable secret evil. It's what's in me and what's in us. Thousands of years ago, again, the prophet Isaiah lamented, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, all the good stuff we can do is like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on God's name or strives to lay hold of God, for He has hidden His face from us and given us over to our sins. The prolonged torture of a young woman by teenage boys may seem unfathomable to you and me, but if the world is a mess, all of us are making it, and few of us really care with each pair of tennis shoes we purchase that enables towering conglomerates to enslave children, with each hamburger that contributes to oceans of toxic sludge dumped in water systems and smoke billowing from industrial smokestacks, with every hour racked up on screen time reports that drives us further from empathy and engagement and relationships and deeper into loneliness and hatred and isolation, with every venomous word, every dollar hoarded and spent on ourselves while hunger and need rend the world, with every fuel cell of hatred piled on the burning altar of political idolatry and social media vitriol, beneath every complicated layer of evil, somewhere deep in the oily, black, snake-tangled heart of the world's darkness is us. All of us, as Nick Cave sang with elegant simplicity in 1997, people just ain't no good. And as we quibble over safety protocols, 
pitching fits about either being made to wear masks or that someone else isn't wearing a mask. Elsewhere in the world, a kidnapped, a kidnapped child spends her last Christmas in unseen agony. Elsewhere in the world, there's no good news from the doctor. Elsewhere in the world, for yet another night, there will be no food for yet another family. Not far from here, a child shivers in the freezing rainwater, bracing herself for another night on the streets. Elsewhere in the world, someone asks and keep, keeps asking, where is God? In keeping with the psalmists of centuries prior, how long... Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? And they ask, didn't you promise to do something, God? Didn't you promise? And Advent is a time when we, as disciples of Jesus, as the people of God, allow ourselves to sit in that reality and with those questions to entertain their legitimacy like the people of God before us, to feel those haunting doubts and the hurt of the world pass over and through us. And then, and only then, we can come together to cup our freezing hands around the flickering candlelight of hope. In her wonderful volume on Advent, priest and theologian Fleming Rutledge writes this, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. It requires courage to look into the heart of darkness, especially when we are afraid we might see ourselves there. The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Instead of pointing out someone else's sin, we confess our own. In our sins, we have been a long time. Advent begins in the dark. Advent finds us in that cold darkness of each December solstice when the sun, the light of the world, seems most distant. So that many hundreds of years ago, disciples of Jesus began to huddle around the warmth of hope, a promise, remembering when everything changed, remembering that He came. Advent begins in the dark. And amongst all this evil amongst all this brokenness and corruption and sin, the incomprehensible mightiness of God became voluntarily frail. And the indescribable bigness of God became very, very small. And the good and beautiful God declared, if they will not leave this burning house, then I will go into the burning house myself and I will take them in my arms and I will carry them to safety. I am coming to save by becoming small and frail and to meet them in their smallness and frailty. All of us needed the kind of rescuing that only God could accomplish and He accomplished it. And if He came to save us once, He'll come to save us again. But Advent is about that time in between 
This dark and sacred season is set between a scandalous beauty that has already taken place, the birth of Jesus, and a second glory yet to come, the renewal of all things. And that future hope exists because God came low to the manger. The resurrection is ever before us when we remember Christmas. Jesus came, so Jesus will come again. But that light of hope is diminished when we refuse to acknowledge our deep need to be saved. When we hide beneath the fluorescent bulbs of department stores and before the glowing home screen of Amazon.com, when we cover our ears to stories like the one about a young Japanese woman who endured hell on earth during Christmas 33 years ago, or when we drown evil and sorrow and sweet drinks and smother them in Christmas wrapping when we forget that this is our long winter. And when we forget the winter, we forget that the winter is coming to an end. What happened to Junko in Japan is an Advent story. It steeps us in the darkness of the time in between. It breaks our hearts and, if we let it, compels us to the ever-burning fire of hope that we light again and again every Advent season. And we remember, Jesus came. He will come again. Again, Fleming Rutledge writes, It is Advent. It is dark and lonely and cold, and the Master is away from home. Yet, He will come. Keep awake. Tonight, the first Sunday of the season, we remember the advent, the coming, but not the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue. And we wait in darkness, but not without hope. Before the night is over, we'll light the first of four candles, one for every Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve as a symbol of our anticipation and expectation as we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus on Christmas. And we acknowledge and remember the darkness in which we wait, not to be undone by it, but so that our songs of hope and celebration ring out through sanctuaries around the world as protest hymns against the way things are, with uncompromising hearts looking to the way things will be. This year, like the ones before it, that can be hard to do. Christmas ornaments everything. It soundtracks our grocery stores and decorates our street lamps. It crowds our calendars and squeezes our bank accounts. And in all of it, we're being drawn away from the subversive hope of Advent and into a superficial, half-pagan parody of something ancient and mysterious and beautiful. And don't get me wrong, again, I love all of it. I don't think that the secular festivities are evil or wrong. I don't care about the pagan origins of Christmas trees or Yule logs. I don't care what a giant coffee chain puts on a cup. Advent, to me, is not about burning down the dearly loved traditions of the holiday. It's about learning to redirect ourselves and one another as a family to something greater over them all, something that lends more significance to all of it. And we can come together for the next few weeks and remember together as a family. 
as we light one candle after another, allowing ourselves to sit in the sadness and remorse of sin and evil, to let that sadness light the fires of hope. God is coming to save his people. He came before and he will come again. And as we occupy the space between, Advent draws our minds backward in time to that dark, sacred night in Bethlehem. And that night allows us to transport our hopeful hearts forward to a coming day when he arrives again, once and for all. And the only way we can truly prepare ourselves for the brilliance of that future is to stare into the darkness before the long winter breaks. The in-between in which you and I live embodies and proclaims the great paradox of salvation. If we allow our hearts to step into the darkness of the long winter to remember our hurt and our ache and our longing, and if we wait, then that first glow of light will stir our anxious souls to fevered anticipation, and we will find ourselves before the manger on hands and knees in the dirt and manure amongst the stank of livestock with tear-streaked faces broken down in worship. And we will remember in the depths of our soul that He is more than an angelic cherub or a plastic lawn decoration or a charming church pageant, that rather than descend a golden staircase protected by an impenetrable divine aura, He came to us in darkness, in our darkness, God came to us, blood-streaked as babies do, soundtracked by his mother's cries of pain and struggle, lowing cows and buzzing flies, that as our homes are filled with the delicious aromas of cinnamon and spruce, God arrived in the nauseating copper tinge of blood and the heavy fetid stink of waste. God came to us in the long winter. At Advent, we ask with all the world, where was God? Where is God? And after we sit in the agony of the question, we answer with aching hearts, He is with us. And then cry out in worship and celebration that He came to us in Jesus and that he will come again. Let's pray together before we light the candle. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.